This podcast is an EGA production. Welcome to Forecasting the Middle East, the EGA podcast on Middle East business, politics, and trends. I'm Tyler Jones, Director of Middle East and North Africa with EGA in Washington, D.C. On May 28th, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan defeated opposition challenger Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu in a runoff election to extend his rule of Turkey into its third decade. Now, Erdogan is charged with steering his country through a mounting economic crisis. Today, inflation in Turkey is hovering above 40%. The lira has fallen to 20 against the U.S. dollar, and foreign investors have all but abandoned the Turkish market. What can we expect from Erdogan's economic policies at the outset of this new term? And what changes, if any, can the global community expect from the Turkish foreign policy? With me to discuss the way forward for Turkey is Dr. Stephen Cook, a senior fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Today, Stephen and I sat down to discuss the election results, Erdogan's economic agenda, and how he may navigate Turkey through this economic crisis. Dr. Stephen Cook, E&I Enrico Matei, Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thanks for being with us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Tyler. So, Stephen, obviously the big news coming out of Turkey this weekend, Recep Tayyip Erdogan wins the runoff election and now starts uh, the beginning of his third decade at the helm in Turkey. Uh, Top line items here in advance of the elections, obviously being Turkey's ongoing economic upheaval. And what some are saying was a pretty flat-footed response by Erdogan and his administration following the earthquakes. So very big picture. What surprised you about these elections? Well, I have to be honest with you. Um, I've been watching Erdogan in Turkey for as long as he's been in power and even for a time beforehand. And there really wasn't all that much that was surprising. I think what was surprising to me mostly was the commentary coming from whether it was colleagues in the West or Turkish observers that it, who had an expectation that Kemal Kilic Daroglu, the opposition candidate, actually had a chance to win. Um, it strikes me that people need to shift their focus in thinking about Erdogan's Turkey and what it means uh, to be a, a, a elected autocracy, to be uh, to be perfectly frank about it. I, that, that's not an analytic definition, but that kind of describes what we have. Um, yes, there was a contested election, but the outcome, as the outcome has been over most of these past 20 years, pretty much determined ahead of time. Yes, there were moments where the AKP and Erdogan's party, which is Erdogan's party, didn't do well. In 2015, they lost their parliamentary majority. But I will point out to people that when they lost their parliamentary majority, President Erdogan sabotaged coalition, government coalition negotiations in order to force a new election in which the AKP returned to a majority in parliament. Uh, And then in 2019, the big example is they weren't able to get the win that they wanted in the Istanbul elections and re-ran it and then lost by a bigger margin. I think that Erdogan has learned from this and he was never going to give it up. His prime directive has been to be the president of Turkey on the 100th anniversary of the Republic, which is coming up on August 29th of this year. And 
they were going to clear the field and do everything that they possibly could do to ensure a victory so that on election day, things would be mostly free, but the election itself wouldn't be fair. They essentially picked Kilich Dorolo, the weakest possible candidate to run against him. So I was not shocked about Erdogan's conduct, the government's conduct in the run up to the elections, what happened on the two days of voting. I was shocked that people actually believed that he was going to allow himself to lose and somehow ride off into the sunset in some sort of retirement phase. So, you know, there's a body of research that says if and when an authoritarian will fall, the circumstances at play may in fact look a lot like the circumstances at play in Turkey right now. Widespread criticism following the earthquakes, economic crisis with no end in sight here. And again, say what you will about Kilic Dorolu himself as the quality of the candidate, but the opposition there fairly well unified. And yet here we are. So, right. you know, that has people asking if, if not now, when or will it ever happen? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a social scientist. I'm a political scientist by training. And I think there's a lot of things that have happened over the course of the last 10 or 15 years where we have to rethink what we had believed were um, in, in important insights about the durability of both authoritarian systems and democracies. Um, if we were going by some of the data sets that had been built throughout the 1990s and early 2000s, Turkey would be well on its way to becoming a consolidated liberal democracy by any number uh, of measures. Yet Erdogan was really at the leading edge of the de-democratization project that we've seen in Hungary and Poland and, and other places around the world. So I, by those measures, we should not have been seeing Erdogan win. Uh, but I think we, as I said, I think we need to rethink the way in which we think about these systems. And I, and, and I have been kind of pushing back on this idea of competitive authoritarianism. People are arguing to me, well, Turkey is certainly competitive in comparison to Egypt, in comparison to other, other countries in the region around it. But in the end, does that really matter if the outcome is, is always the same? Uh, the outcome is Erdogan. If, if, if the system has been engineered to ensure an Erdogan victory, yes, he, need, he wants the electoral victory for legitimacy. But I wonder whether after this election, Turks will become depoliticized. They, it's clear. It was clear first. I mean, to anybody who's spent any amount of time in Turkey understands how important Turks value their vote. But it was certainly clear after that 2019 Istanbul mayoralty election how important it was, at least to Istanbulis, you know, 23 million people. People were flying back to Istanbul to vote in the in the second election. But and and Erdogan lost and the AKP lost. But I wonder after this, after this very hard fought campaign, after the opposition did many things right, although they did many things wrong. Um, whether people are going to believe in their vote any longer. You started to hear, there, uh, there was a lot on social media, people at the polling places being interviewed saying, well, I know he's going to win, but I'm going to vote anyway. I know they've rigged it, but I'm going to vote anyway. And people are saying, look, isn't that important? Isn't that, doesn't that show how much Turks value their vote? Well, yes, but it also suggests a certain cynicism and a certain diminishment or diminishing sense of how important their votes are. And I wonder when we get to the next presidential election, if Erdogan stands, I mean, sure. he, under the current constitution, he can't, but he's going to want to write a new constitution in the next three to five years. 
um, whether people will come out in the in the huge, huge numbers that they did, at least in the first round, it was 88 percent. I mean, something, yeah. that, you know, in the United States, we can't even come close to. So I want to turn here for a second then to talk Turkish economy, because obviously now that's that's the big crisis facing Erdogan. And by every economic benchmark, we're looking things look grim. Inflation is above 40% right now. It's been even higher. The lira has fallen to just about 20 against the U.S. dollar. After the elections, Erdogan promised he was going to bring in a team of internationally credible finance experts to manage this, this turnaround. But knowing Erdogan the way we do at this point, do you expect much of a change with his economic policies? You know, Erdogan has been running against the interest rate lobby for at least 10 years. Um, we have heard this constant refrain about the interest rate lobby since I think he first rolled it out during the Gezi Park protests, which were in May and June, actually the entire summer of 2013. Um, it strikes me that he's not likely to surrender to the interest rate lobby so soon. There have been reports that, um, the former finance minister, Mehmet Shimshek is going to come back. Um, Shimshek my understanding from my talking to people doesn't necessarily want to come back. Um, but that Erdogan is um, making these announcements that he's going to come back, making it harder for yeah. him to not to resist. Yeah. And this strikes me as a, as a way of trying to mollify wall street and uh, international financial institutions that there is a steady hand uh, at the, at the helm of the economy, but really the only steady hand that Erdogan trusts is his own and his own political instincts. Um, Erdogan believes he's basically surrounded by a bunch of fools, rubes, and knaves, and really he's the only one who knows what, what, how, to, how to manage Turkey. So I'm skeptical that we're going to see a, a, a turnaround on interest rates very soon. Um, it's possible he has, you know, one year he's calling the Emiratis the source of all instability in the Middle East and the world and that they're terrorists. And the next he's having meetings with Mohammed bin Zayed, the president of the UAE. Uh, he did everything possible in 2018 to undermine the legitimacy of Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia. Yet he flew off to Riyadh. That ties into the economic piece of it, because up until this point, they've been able the Turks have been able to muddle through because they've been able to tap into the very large sovereign wealth funds of the Gulf. He didn't make up with these guys because he suddenly has fallen in love with them out of Muslim solidarity or anything along those lines, but that he doesn't want to go to the IMF. It would reveal the emperor to really have no clothes. And so he's basically sought credit swaps with the Emiratis, the Chinese, the Qataris, and investment from these countries' sovereign wealth funds. And that's the way he believes he is going to muddle through this and that a cheap lira is going to save them through export-led growth. Um, he is just loath to, even, even if someone could talk sense to him about the economy, he will not want to very quickly turn around on interest rates and, and increase the pain on his core constituents, pain that he's already inflicted on, on them sure. by, by going back on his promises. So... Um, I think for now, in the immediate aftermath of the election, what you see is what you're going to get. And if he does manipulate Shimshek and others back into government, it's really just going to be window dressing um, to yeah. to instill 
confidence in markets for a short period of time. So then marrying up the economic policy with with talks on on what, if anything, will be different here with his foreign policy moving forward here. Obviously, Turkey at this point is desperate for foreign investment. They've been blowing through their foreign currency reserves. Do you see him, Erdogan, using his foreign policy as a means of trying to to attract some semblance of, of foreign foreign investment here? Do you think the foreign policy from Erdogan will really be on offer here as an attempt to bring back any foreign investors who may have already fled? Well, we've already seen that. I, I, I think the the rapprochement with the Gulf states uh, is is driven in part by that. I think one part of it on the foreign policy front it, to Erdogan's thinking is that that kind of maximal approach to the Middle East and the Eastern Mediterranean didn't work. It, 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 there were limits to it. Um, not only did you have Egyptian, Cypriots, Greeks, and Israelis coalescing against the exercise of Turkish power in the Eastern Mediterranean, but you also, joining that group, you also had the Emiratis and the Saudis, and the Turks were really quite isolated. This was coming at a time where the Turkish economy was really hitting the skids. And so he has sought a rapprochement, particularly with the Emiratis and, and the Saudis. The, the Qataris had floated the Turks for quite some time, but the, the crisis is so bad, it, you can't just rely on, on, on the Qataris. So the rapprochement is based in part on economic need, and it's, it's, it's worth it for the Saudis and the Emiratis who discovered that they can't gain leverage over Erdogan by funding, for example, Khalifa Haftar in Libya, uh, who, who couldn't manage, who, who, who couldn't manage to to uh, overrun the Turkish and Qatari-backed government in, in Libya. Um, and so the way in which they have sought to gain more leverage with Erdogan is by buying Turkish assets and making him dependent upon their money. Just before the election, they deposited money in the central bank. That's the only reason why there's a net positive foreign exchange in the, in the Turkish central bank these, these, these days. Um, so much for, for Erdogan's nationalism other than rhetorical. So I, I think that that is part of the rapprochement with the Gulf, um, even Israel. Um, the the point about in 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 repairing ties with Israel is this kind of worldview that the Turkish leadership has is that this will improve relations with Washington. Improving relations with Washington will overall provide a a. a, a De-escalating tension with Washington will help with foreign investment in Turkey. Um, I think that's a miscalculation. I think that the the belief that rapprochement with Israel will reduce tension with Washington is not true. The long list of, of disagreements with Washington is long and has very little actually to do with Israel. Um, and I don't think it will bring more investment or um, it won't. Uh, it, it won't produce credit swaps. The U.S. government has very specific requirements for engaging in, in credit swaps, and Turkey just doesn't meet it. So uh, I don't think um, that's going to happen. But certainly with regard to the Gulf, uh, it's part of Erdogan's economic statecraft, such, as, such that it is. So then looking ahead here, the next electoral battle that Erdogan and the AKP have is coming up in, in just about a year here with the, the local elections in Ankara and Istanbul. 
from from what we've learned here and seen over the last few weeks, what do you think, if anything, Erdogan and the AKP will do differently as they approach these local elections? Well, it's clear that they have their sights on these elections. When Erdogan, before yep. he, he, he gave his quote-unquote balcony speech, he did come out and make remarks, and he said, we're going to take back Istanbul. And Istanbul is, is symbolically important. I mean, he was the mayor of Istanbul. Um, yep. It was the, the kind of seen as an AKP fortress for very long. And in the 2019 local elections, he said, if we, if we lose Istanbul, we will have lost the country. So I think regaining Istanbul will be, will, will be regaining the country. And I think that they'll work extremely hard to do it. Will they go back to their roots? Uh, and, uh, and and try to um, provide superior services and kind of outmaneuver the current mayor of, of Istanbul, Ekrem Imamoglu, who's already on trial and could be banned yeah. and may have to go to jail. So I think, I think they'll try to see for sure that Imamoglu cannot serve out and then try to go back, perhaps go back to their roots and, and try to provide Turks a reason, Istanbul is a reason to vote for them. And then when it comes to the election, in the run-up to the election, make sure that all of the advantage accrues to whoever is whomever is the, the AKP candidate, just like they've done. But each election for the AKP, each way in which they've done this, besides their superior organization, the way in which they've tried to clear their field has been different. Um, they've been certainly creative in this in, in, in free but unfair elections. So it's hard to say how exactly they'll uh, they'll approach it. But certainly getting Imamolu, who remains quite a popular mayor, is uh, is an important uh, is an important piece of it. Yeah. So earlier this month in, in the run up to the elections here, we saw Russia agree to delay some of Turkey's natural gas payments, a not so subtle attempt by the Kremlin to really put their thumb on the scale here. Moving forward, how do you see Russia-Turkey relations unfolding in, in the new term. I, I think there's going to be a lot of continuity between what you know we've been seeing over the course of the last few years or so and more, uh, and what we'll see going forward. Erdogan very much wants to pursue an independent foreign policy, an independent of the United States, independent of NATO. Turkey is not just an asset to NATO or an appendage to the Atlantic Alliance on the southeastern flank. It, it, he His refrain has often been the world is bigger than five. Um, he sees Turkey as a as a potentially a member of BRICS, uh, wants to join the, the, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. Turkey, in Erdogan's vision, is a power in its own right in a number of different domains, in, in the Middle East, in the Eastern Mediterranean, in Europe, in Central Asia, in the Muslim world writ large. And I think what he shares with Putin is the belief that an American-led order doesn't necessarily accrue to Turkey's benefits. Um, and, you know, uh, he, he may be right about that. And I think that we should accept the fact that Turkey is going to be, we being the United States, should accept the fact that Turkey is going to be independent and not um, think of ways in which we can kind of pull Turkey back into the fold. You know, if we just give them F-16s, that will make Turkey yeah. the staunch NATO ally that it actually never was. Um, it's always been a difficult, problematic, teeth-gnashing relationship. We've just told ourselves 
that it was a great relationship. It really actually wasn't when you dig down into the details of it. So I think we need to accept the fact that Turkey is a, a difficult ally and that we should work with Turkey where our interests coincide, oppose Turkey where we must, and in other places, just get out of each other's, get out of each other's way. I should also, I just want to point out, though, that not everything about the Turkey-Russia relationship is bad. The Black Sea grain deal, for whatever problems it 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 it, it can you know contained within it, stolen Ukrainian grain, it is still feeding, helping to feed many people around the world. I shudder to think without this grain deal, what would be happening in Egypt, a country of 110 desperately poor people that is of extraordinary importance uh, to global trade and security. Um, I think that if we are looking for an interlocutor at some point with Putin. Erdogan is that guy. Now we can't necessarily trust everything that Erdogan's going to do with Putin, but he he's of all the leaders who put themselves out as being a mediator, as being an interlocutor, as someone who can ex it's it's going to be Erdogan. So we should we should ride that as far as it. Uh, as it will take us in the conflict in Ukraine. So, Stephen, the last question I have for you here then is actually touching on a point you you mentioned earlier, which is Erdogan's been saying for some time now his desire to to redraft a new constitution, and he's been saying as recently as in the last week or so this will be one of his earliest priorities in the new term. What do you think? substantively will be the real points he wants to put the most emphasis on in this new constitution. Let me, I, I have been saying this over and over and over again. I have been shouting from the rooftops because every, you know, every journalist who calls and says, well, what do we expect? I said, well, you know, a lot of continuity in foreign policy. They're mostly interested in foreign policy in Russia and Ukraine. I said, but the big, the big deal, yeah. the big deal is a constitution. Erdogan's wanted a constitution. He first said that he wanted a new constitution for Turkey in 2007. It's very hard for him to do it. He had to settle for constitutional amendments in 2017. Um, but now he, I think he feels emboldened, pardon me, emboldened to actually kind of push something through here. And his coalition continues to have a, a, a majority in the parliament, not a super majority to just pass a constitution through parliament. But nevertheless, he'll have the kind of support that he needs to at least write one. And I think if you look at the, Turkish constitution on which, and, and of course, the constitution of 1982 has been amended many, many, many times. And I think, you know, in the abstract, he's right. Turkey needs a new constitution. But the 1982 constitution was written in order to protect the state from its citizens. I think there's an analogy here with what Erdogan wants. Erdogan wants to write a new constitution to lock in the changes that he and the AKP have made since the AKP first came to power in November 2002. The opposition ran essentially on a platform of reversing what Erdogan has done. And it's now time to protect the AKP's Turkey from the people. And that's what the constitution I think will, will be about more than, more than anything else. Um, there, and I, I expect that, there will be lots of support from for this in the same way that there was support for Erdogan's victory. I think, you know, look, there was certainly questionable practices 
when it came to this re-election, but it's undeniable that Erdogan still has a message that resonates with at least in slightly more than half of the, the Turkish public. Um, he was penalized for the slow response in the earthquake and he was penalized for the economy and he still came on top. Part of that, as as we started out this conversation, was a problem with the, with, with the opposition. But my point is, is that Turkey is really a right of center nationalist country. And if he's going to write a constitution, it's going to be to protect these changes in cultural values um, that that they have been able to accomplish over these 20 years. Look, the, if you look, if you think about the kind of intellectual font, the, the wellspring for Turkish Islamism, going back to, you know, the kind of founding of it in the late 1960s, it's that essentially the republic was a historical accident. Um, and so the idea is to basically undermine the institutions of the republic and, and, and change it in a way that without destroying it, but changing it in the image of the Justice and Development Party. Dr. Stephen Cook, Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Thanks a lot for being with us today. Thanks again, Tyler.